and welcome to Historical Frictions, a historical fiction podcast where we delve into the nitty-gritty of history, fiction, and everything in between. I'm Tess, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Hilary and Lachlan. Hi. Hello. And we have a very special guest joining us today, uh, Dr. Bridie Cosmina. Welcome. Hello. Um, Bridie has just successfully completed her PhD at Adelaide University uh, entitled We Are the Granddaughters of the Witches You Couldn't Burn, Feminist Afterlives of the Witch in Popular Culture, which is a genealogy of cultural memories and literary afterlives of the witch in 20th and 21st century Western popular culture and activism. So she is the absolute perfect guest to join us this week. Her thesis was awarded a Dean's Commendation for Doctoral Thesis Excellence. Um, and this was just recently that she finished. So congratulations again, Bridie, on your amazing results. Well done. Yay. Um, yeah, I'm very excited to talk about this book today. Yay. So how, how are you doing? How is your post-thesis life? <laughs> um, I mean, everything's kind of swamped by pandemic uh, gloom, mm. so I don't know. Uh, it feels much the same as when you're doing the thesis, to be honest. I hate to break it to you guys. Um, <laughs> you just as anxious afterwards. Oh, boy. Cool. <laughs> Something to look forward to. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we're all very excited. I say we're all. Bridie and I are very excited to talk about this. So uh, I think we should just get straight into it. This week, we are technically focusing on one book, as usual, it's called The Witches of Blackbrook by Tish Thor. But this book is one example of a particular kind of culture and use of this historical imagination around the idea of the witch that we want to talk more broadly about together, um, given this is an area that both Bridie and I actually work on. I've been looking at games um, specifically, but Bridie has a bit more of a kind of broader range of knowledge on this. And like I said, just finished her PhD. So I'm sure she has a lot more to say about it. And I'm very excited to hear your thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, so this is our uh, second spooky Halloween read for the month, and we hope you all enjoyed Hillary's thoughts on The Witch of Willow Hall last week, uh, which was set in the 1820s. Uh, and it was also <laughs> about a group of three sisters who are witches and have a connection to an ant history of witchcraft. I mean, only two of them oh, are witches, sorry. sorry. Two yeah, of them, yes. yes. Cool. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the other one was just impregnated by a brother so that's fine of course oh god that's right <laughs> <laughs> oh no i'm remembering now <laughs> yeah flashbacks <laughs> yes yeah, so now tess is building on that theme um obviously as well as bridey uh and as you may have seen on that instagram um it is definitely a very witchy theme for the reads for this month and just a little reminder that our bonus episode at the end of this month is going to be released on halloween so the 31st on which is a saturday which is a very odd day for a podcast <laughs> <laughs> and it's about Hocus Pocus. So not only is our theme witchy in general, it's a very specific three witches theme as well as a Salem-y theme. So uh, as Bridie's our special guest this week, uh, we'll let her give her opinion first, since you both read the young adult novel titled The Witches of Blackbrook by Tish Thor. Uh, firstly, what did you think? Did you like it? I cannot in good conscience recommend this book to anyone. <laughs> um, that said... I did really enjoy reading it, but I do have a very specific research background. So Tess is maybe the only other person who would enjoy uh, reading this book along with me. And she did get quite a few of my uh, midnight messages saying, what? what? 
That's true. We had quite a lot of fun reading it. <laughs> a lot of fun reading it, but um, it was perhaps a more vitriolic fun than we should. Mm. Yes. Um, and I do want to start off with uh, a bit of a kind of clarification or disclaimer for this, um, because we're probably going to talk quite a bit about things that we didn't love about this book, which is also what we did last podcast episode. And this kind of particular narrative about female suffering to do with this image of the witch um, and the kind of martyrdom um, and these kind of these different narratives have been utilized in a lot of ways, but and often by feminists. And so I don't want this to seem like a judgment or a, a dismissal of, you know, of feminists or historians or, or modern witches. It's not kind of a negative judgment on the different ways that this history has been taken up in general and not a kind of criticism of a desire to connect with this past or anything like that. Because I don't want this to seem like we've just had a series of like really negative opinions on the books that we've read this month. It just so happens that we really didn't particularly like uh, this one. <laughs> but I did want to kind of put that out there at the start that, you know, I think it's awesome that people are, are connecting with this idea of, of witchcraft in, in the modern world and connecting with that history, engaging with history. Um, so I wanted to say at the start, I just didn't like um, this book. <laughs> I think that's what makes witches such a compelling sort of historical figure too, that they are both a historical figure that we can kind of critique and look at in a scholarly way, but they're also a religion that, you know, is incredibly important across the world for people's mm. spirituality. And so you sort of are constantly having this juggle between myth, history, memory, fiction, that is quite compelling to dive into. So even though this book wasn't the best representation <laughs> of the past, it is really fun to rip apart why it isn't because <laughs> there are so many different contradictory threads to it. Yeah. And as we've said, it's really kind of emblematic of this moment and this, this fixation on the idea of witches and this particular use of their history. So it's a good one to use as an example to think about this culture. Oh, cool. Did you guys want to, give us a breakdown of the story itself to give us a bit more of an idea of what it's about. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, so basically the book alternates between a setting in Ipswich, Massachusetts at the end of the 17th century and the present day in a place kind of nearby called Blackbrook. Um, it follows the story of three sisters. So in the 17th century, they're called Kara, Kenna, and Karina. Kara becomes Karis in the 21st century. Oh. Kenna is Kennedy, and Karina is Katrina, but she is known as Trin. Oh um, my god. The surname is not Kardashian either, but it's <laughs> <laughs> um, And also Karina, original Karina's romantic partner um, named Jeremiah, who becomes Jason. Also, also is involved. So the sisters are young at the start in uh, 1683 and they grow up through these flashbacks that are spaced out throughout the book. But the prologue actually starts in 1693 with Karina being burnt at the stake. We'll come back to this. Uh, <laughs> and casting a, a magical spell that throws their souls uh, forward through time. And we learn through the book that they've lived kind of a few lives in between. It's, it's unclear exactly how the mechanics of this are working. Yeah. But, but now like they're Slaughterhouse so... Five vibes from it. Pardon? Like, I got like the Slaughterhouse Five vibes. Like they're able <laughs> to move their sort of consciousness across bodies. Like mm. in the, that one against book. I'm probably uh, being too generous in that reading, but... <laughs> it seems like a very possibly. generous interpretation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
hmm, I mean, that, that could be cool. I'm not sure if she actually does that in the book. And so, yeah, so Karina is this kind of main character, or Trin, as she now is, a main character. Um, and the, the plot kind of revolves around the effort of the, the three sisters in the modern world to reunite because they, they will be most powerful when all of them are back together with their magical uh, energies. And the kind of antagonist of the story is a demon. And the kind of broader plot there is that demons would feed off witches' magical energies, which somehow caused the witch trials. I'm not sure if you can explain that better, Bridie, because I'm not going to lie, I don't remember. And I lent you the book, so I couldn't check. I think it was... <laughs> oh, wait, do you want to remember? Reveal who the demon is, because it's something to do with that. At which point? Because the demon possesses many people. The demon is Heinrich Kramer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he wrote uh, quite a well-known demonological treatise in early modern Europe. And I think the book is trying to say that he orchestrated the witch trials. I, this is set in America, and obviously he was from Europe, and I, I don't know how they're meant yeah. to be connected. But he wrote, for listeners, he wrote The Malice Maleficarum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. In the 1400s. <laughs> So I think, but it's the same demon who's possessed like many different, or not possessed, but like embodied. So, so after Kramer died, like the demon then becomes someone else. I think it's implied that the demon demon is also um, the the person that catches, um, not Trin. What was her original name? Uh, Karina doing very nice magic. She's like blessing some ointments that they've made, and like Caesar doing that, and that's why she gets caught. I think. It's kind of it's, uh, Danforth, whatever his name was, he's sort yeah. of supposed to also be the demon. It's a bit confusing. I think there's tr- she's trying to argue that Heinrich Kramer orchestrated the witch trials so that it would drive all the witches out into the open and then he could... Mm. So he could then eat... But <laughs> that just seems like a flaw because then he'll eat them then all. Then they would the- be gone. But... Mm. The demon, so of course he's not going to do something that makes sense, it's fine. Cool, 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 cool. So it didn't make sense. That's good, just to clarify. Yes, and so the spoilers plot of that is that the person that Trin thinks is one of her sisters that she's been kind of living with is in fact someone who is working for the demon who is still around and has been feeding off her energy this whole time and stopping her from reconnecting with her real sisters. She does then reconnect with them and the boy and they triumph over the evil demon because they're together again and then there is this this huge crowd of people ready to join their their new powerful witch coven in the 21st century at the end of the book. So I feel like there's quite a few other plot points within that that we're going to want to talk about. Um, but is there anything else that you want to kind of add into that overall summary now, Bridie? I think that's a pretty good summary of the, <laughs> the general structure of the book. Um, mm. It's pretty confusing at the beginning trying to work out the jumps between 1692 or 1693 and the present day, but mm. I think you've done a pretty good job summarising it. The uh, multiple names for everyone is what really threw me. Mm. Multiple names and then also some nicknames. I was like, why? Yeah, That's really full on. <laughs> yeah. It's quite mm. confusing. Are you confused, Lucky? <laughs> I'm very confused. Yeah, yes. okay, good. I was I've like, read it and I'm confused. Yeah. Did you say that one of them was called Karina and she changes her name to Katrina? Was that? I think so. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's just adding a T. <laughs> but like Kara is Karis. Like it's just changing the A to an Is. 
Yeah. And then Kennedy. Kennedy. Right. Because I feel like Karina would, I wouldn't like about her. I would just just leave it as Karina. Karina. Yeah. It's like Kara, Kenna, and Karina are not like uniquely medieval names. Like you could just still, you could have, no, not medieval. I apologize. I was about to say 17th century. Yeah. Uh oh. (laughs) Got thrown by thinking about the Malleus and the fact that they're saying that's relevant. Cool. Before we talk a bit more about uh, this specific book's reception, uh, perhaps you two would like to talk to us a bit more about the context for this trend uh, or this type of narrative in other books and media. Yeah, I think I, 2020 or 2010s at least, I kind of, there's this resurgence of the witch that I think in pop culture that I think you can sort of correlate to what happened in the 90s where you get this resurgence of the witch too. Um, and... I think it's to do with political trends at both of these times, but it's also this ongoing feminist recuperation of the past, of trying to find and create narratives of the past for women who have, or non-binary people or trans people who have traditionally been excluded from that past. Um, and there's a long scholarly tradition of this, but there's also a very long activist tradition of this. Um, And I think the recurrence now is kind of reaching a critical mass where there's almost people are getting sick and tired of witch texts (laughs) in the same way that we got sick and tired of zombie texts in the 2000s or vampire texts for a while there. I think the witch is kind of the current one. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting moment in in both of those kind of contexts because there are particular ways that the witch is being used as a kind of point of... Um, finding power and as this kind of um, outlet for particular, um, particularly women, but I think gender diversity more generally, but people that are kind of part of marginalized groups that don't really have access to a lot of, I guess, mainstream kind of power, being able to express a type of powerfulness. But it is also a narrative that kind of attests to oppression over time and this idea that... um, that that power is being repressed um, and that they are kind of martyrs of a particular violence. And so it kind of does both of those things at the same time in different representations and often in the same representations. I think there's also like people are villains because they're powerful. To to be a villain implies you already have a certain amount of power and where the witch has sort of historically been viewed as a villain, that automatically still inscribes her with a certain amount of power. And so there's a recuperative method of using the witch now, gaining that power that she has access to, but using that and not doing away with the anger that comes with it. Like the witch can often be inscribed, not in this book, this is quite a sort of touchy-feely type of witch. But in a lot of other witch texts, you get this very deep anger or violence that is actually quite useful for, I think, feminist purposes. Mm. Um, This book, though, is using more of this sort of neo-pagan Wiccan tradition, which (laughs) is kind of more descended from historical work from the 20s and even from the Victorian um, spiritualist movement, where they're trying to sort of use the occult in a sort of nature cult, fertility cult kind of way that has now become codified as a sort of pagan religion. Um, which is very much focused on nature and spirituality and far more kind things than the sort of violence that the witch is traditionally associated with. Yeah, absolutely. What a lot of people don't realise about that kind of neo-pagan movement and about kind of Wicca rituals is that a lot of them were effectively written in the early 20th century, but that a really important part of that religion has become this claim to historicity, this claim to kind of historical authenticity to what they're doing, particularly to a kind of pagan 
medieval or early modern kind of past connected in with that rise of the presence of witches that happened during the witch trials period. That's what I think is so compelling about the witch as a pop culture figure and as like a spiritual religious figure is that Mm. like so much of paganism sort of relies on this claim of being, you know, the oldest living religion and this religion that's been existing for thousands and thousands of years. But when you actually trace it back, it sort of originates within living memory, really. But it, it very much still presents itself as being a very old religion. Um, And so that sort of rupture between the actual history of it, but the memory that we have of it is really interesting to me. Yeah. And that's not, I mean, that's not a new thing as well. I think there's a lot of different ways that we constantly have this kind of, we can see this, this search and this desire to kind of connect something back to a deeper history to kind of validate it in the present. Yeah. I think it's a it's wholly positive or usually wholly positive thing to do. Um, so when you look at something like Margaret Murray's um, book from mm. the 1920s, The Witch Cult in Europe, which is kind of this seminal historical, and I'm going to put that in air quotes, text about the history of what a witch is and why the witches were killed in the witch trials. She has all of these arguments about, you know, the witches who were killed in the witch trials were the earliest um, evidence of fertility cults and of this, you know, long-standing pagan religion. Um, and she got to write the Encyclopedia Britannica entry on witchcraft, which was in <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica until the 1960s. But then historians sort of looked at her sources and realised that she'd made up half of them. Um, mm-hmm. You get this kind of presentation of historical veracity without necessarily the scholarship to back it up but it has kind of become the common narrative of it anyway. Mm. And so the, this rupture between popular history and the academy, basically, is really, really interesting here, which is why I like looking at the witch in pop culture, because I think that's a way that people can play with what history serves um, for marginalised groups. Yeah, and the other thing that I find really interesting, because I kind of, when I first started doing my research on this, I thought... Not that, that, not that I would, you know, find the truth about witchcraft histories, right? But that there would be at least some kind of, there'd be some certainty in some of the representations. You know, I'd be able to say, well, I think this one is actually proper wrong. Um, and a lot of the time, particularly with this narrative about witches as kind of wise women or as healers, as that kind of particular type of magical user, that they were these, you know, wrongfully persecuted healers in villages in particular, in kind of smaller communities, they weren't practicing any kind of malicious witchcraft often any witchcraft at all they were just kind of practicing herbal remedies etc that that's not necessarily it's not necessarily that that isn't true that that didn't happen but it's the way that that narrative was constructed and told in the sort of 60s and 70s that made it like this was the only narrative of that period and so when you see all of these versions of that story in popular culture you can't say well that never happened it's completely historically inaccurate but it's more this kind of weird tension in trying to say well that isn't the only story that we can tell about it that isn't the only thing that was going on there was all this other kind of anyway I just find that kind of interesting that there's a real desire to know what happened, but there's a lot of ways that we're never really going to be able to reconstruct it. And also that there's, there's no one story about what happened in that kind of very tumultuous past. And that's the thing why it's such a compelling um, mm. historical era to use for feminist work, not necessarily for feminist history, but for feminist mm. activism or for feminist um, rhetoric, because it is kind of a playground where you can 
create stories that do empower women within quite a patriarchal state. Absolutely. And that's something that I think is really, really important. Um, like I tend to think of myself less as a historian and more on more as a cultural studies scholar, precisely mm. because I don't think it's ever really possible or even to be honest, useful to f- define the one true story of the witch trials. It's exactly the, the multiplicity of it is what makes it such a useful trope in pop culture. I think. Mm. That sounds really fascinating, the whole conversation that's coming out here. <laughs> with that all in mind, just particularly with that sort of, you know, historical referencing and evocation, I guess, how does this particular book use history? Because, I mean, we're doing it in a historical fiction podcast, so it, it's listed as historical fiction novel, mm-hmm. but it's also paranormal uh, sounds like there's some spooky witchy stuff going on. It's also young adult fiction. It's romance, fantasy, and there's other installments. Tess, you've written here that there's science fiction involved. Yes. I'm so interested. How is there science fiction involved? I don't know, but the last one is listed as science fiction and apparently oh. has won an award for science fiction. That's I so think funny. it's because it involves time travel, but so does this one. Oh, maybe they go to space in the future. Anyway. No, I think they go back to the past again. Oh, I weird. think that their, their souls in future people physically time travel back to the time oh. when they were witches in the 17th century. Okay. Well, do you want to... But anyway, we haven't, read the, we haven't read those two. <laughs> no, but that's really interesting. Anyway, <laughs> so um, do you guys want to talk a little bit more about the sort of historical side and how this sort of uses history as much as it does? I think... This book uses history a lot and it's got the same problems that a lot of texts about witches that use history have, mm-hmm. which is that it uses history completely inaccurately. <laughs> um, not in a way that I think, like, I'm all for using history inaccurately. I think it's useful a lot of the time politically. Mm. But in this book, it ends up just being quite frustrating. <laughs> So, like, the very first sentence is Trin being burned at the stake. But there were no witches burned in Salem. They were hanged. It's yeah. this, like, constant undercutting its own historical veracity by just getting basic things wrong. Yeah. Very frustrating. Very. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think you mentioned this as well, but literally it's, it's on the first page that Karina is being burned and does this kind of spell. Um, that's kind of the prologue to the book. And as soon as it started with that, I was already annoyed. <laughs> I was already annoyed opening the book with this kind of the flames lapping at whatever the kind of description was <laughs> that you said before, Brady. Because it's just, it starts you off on this foot of like, but that is a thing that we do know. <laughs> you know, it's there's not- so much uncertainty, but that's not one of the things. <laughs> it starts with flames, flames licked the hem of her dress as she worked Ooh. to free her hands from the ropes. Yes, no, they didn't. Yes. No one was burned. They not. <laughs> um, I think that, that using the sort of burning at the stake example, though, it is quite interesting because I think the pop culture memory of what the witch trials mm. were, we always imagine a woman being burned at the stake, yeah. even yeah. when we're talking about anywhere in um, New England in the US. Like, we always picture that. And so it's this kind of conflation of the European witch trials and the American witch trials that I think is kind of melded a whole bunch of different narratives together into one sort of big messy conglomeration mm. um, which is how we end up with Heinrich Kramer turning up 
here, even though he lived 200 years earlier and in another mm. country. And that's part of this, like, I guess, if you're going to write something about something that is so iconic as the kind of this idea of the witch trials, they certainly exist in popular memory is this kind of quite homogenous like moment that everyone had these witch trials, like the witch trials is a thing people say to refer to this whole period. And they just they don't realize how diverse that was, how different the trials operated in different places. I mean, there was definitely the, uh, this kind of collective narrative and, you know, we have people confessing to the same thing in completely different continents. Continents? Not quite. Countries. Um, <laughs> I was like, hang on, across Europe is what I meant. <laughs> Um, so there are certainly narratives and, and stuff that, that was across all of this, but it's not necessarily one thing to conceptualize. It is kind of quite a diverse, um, set of events in, in very different contexts, but using something like this image of the burning of the witch kind of creates this idea of that collective history to that moment. It's like, and the notion of the burning of the witch is such a effective symbol. Mm. Um, which I think is why it's become such a like if you read a lot of feminist manifestos from the 60s and 70s that aren't historical but they happen mm-hmm. to use history to support them they often will turn to the figure of the witch it, it really gets you this notion of a woman being burned at the stake because she stood up to someone or because she was a healer or like it, mm. it's quite an emotionally driven narrative so even though it is historically inaccurate here it is a (laughs) compelling way to start and they do try and explain it later on where someone says to trin like when she gets captured in 1693 what is she then and she's like oh am i going to be taking to the hanging tree hanging tree yeah no you're too disgusting for that we're going to burn you and it's like well you can't just do that (laughs) that's a but whatever Sorry, I'm just still thinking. It's just what a ride this book was. Anyway, edit that out. I'm just laughing to myself. I even got to oh, this. I'm not editing that out. That was funny. <laughs> does it use history at all? Like, obviously, in like the contemporary setting, like, does it constantly overshadow how the protagonists interact with each other and stuff? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Like, so, so there's, there's kind of two different types of flashbacks in it. So there are the, the chapters, or not quite chapters, but the sections sort of alternate. So, mm-hmm. you know, it gives a little, there's a little section break and you can tell that we've changed and it, it goes into one of these kind of past narratives about them growing up. But also the main character in particular has these flashbacks in moments okay. as well, kind of described within the text where she's thinking back to her previous lives. And it's not just to her 17th century self. It also refers to, I think it's in like sort of mid 18th century where she's like the, the boat. Yeah. And she's uh, administering the smallpox vaccine. Yes, that's right. Mm. And then... <laughs> Uh, right in my, my favourite part. <laughs> truly spectacular. <laughs> Would you like to tell yes. it? Okay. So, Henna, one of the younger witches, the one that they think have been lost for ages, mm. she turns out in the sort of modern day time, her name <laughs> is Kennedy. And she just thinks it's so unfair that people are treated differently because of their race. So in the 1950s, she starts the civil rights movement. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. This incredibly white person called Kennedy apparently started the civil rights movement. And then she joined the FBI. 
and um, used her like powers to convince like white people in white neighborhoods to let black people do stuff. Like that was oh, the kind of, my God. like it was like, that's the reason why they became like white people became more okay with the idea of civil rights <laughs> because she was involved. This is the moment where I messaged <laughs> just, like, what have you made me read? <laughs> Oh my god! Wow, that was great. That was very end this conversation right here. Like that's all we need. (laughs) I think, (laughs) yeah, I think that's a really. It's very telling about this idea um, of like kind of giving this real importance and trying to make the the magic that they have, the powers that they have, seem really important by kind of embedding them in these other notable historical events mm. like you just you didn't have to do that <laughs> she, she didn't need to be involved in that but no, because no, no, no. <laughs> so this is like forrest gump but with yeah. witches. <laughs> i think that's so true as much as i found that bit like funny and then i sort of read it again and i was like oh that's actually really offensive um, <laughs> mm. and it's just compounded by the fact that she then becomes a cop which like yeah. the not to have the best relationship with civil rights activists. So I was like, okay, so you, you, whatever, let's just move on from that to Thora. Mm. It's sort of this constant need to ground itself in history, mm. but the hit, like in order to provide this sort of, I don't know, foundation for the text, but then it, it just gets the history a bit off every mm. single time. Mm. And all- makes it seem more fantasy than historical Mm. fiction Mm. yeah and I think on that as well it's kind of it's not just grounding it in history but it's grounding it again in more of these kind of minority histories like it's this kind of connection that's supposed to be um that's supposed to be creating this sense of like kind of communal suffering I think in a way like that because she's a woman and because she's, uh, you know, a witch, she's Wiccan, so she's had this kind of oppressions. And so therefore she has this affinity with the civil rights movement, this kind of that concept, you know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> that's crazy. Pagan witchcraft as um, a progressive, mm. which it is, like when you look at it, it is pretty, it's far more progressive than some other religions we could probably name. Especially today, um, yeah. But... I think it's this constant sort of, it's a very clumsy attempt Mm. to tie witchcraft to this long history of oppression. Mm. Um, But, you know, not every oppression needs to be tied to the witch trials. (laughs) Um, And there are other ways to do that. Like if we're looking at Salem alone, the very first witch who was, you know, named was Tichaba, who was a slave. Like there are other ways that you can discuss the impact that race has in Mm. the witch trials which is really really important without Mm -hmm. having to make a white woman start the civil rights movement with her magic like (laughs) that is a really important discussion to have but this is not the way to have it yeah and i do think the rest of the representation too where she deals with this kind of ideas about spirituality and um kind of occultism and then you know she goes to a shop to buy her kind of materials and and the way the book kind of describes neo-paganism also feels it just incredibly white <laughs> and yeah mm-hmm. i feel like <sighs> the amount of sage is that what you were about to say <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep i was like okay uh, um and so in that kind of context as well it feels sort of particularly mm, don't like it <laughs> i think it kind of reflects the ongoing way though throughout like other examples of the 
text using that kind of historical backing mm. are nowhere near as offensive as like that is certainly the moment where I was like I am done I can look past yeah I was like that's actually bad <laughs> past all the rest of it but this is just offensive mm-hmm. but it is definitely drawing on popular memory and popular culture more than it's drawing on history but mm. that also allows us to raise the question of well where does historical narrative like where does the authority for historical narrative come from does it come from scholars who often disagree with each other or does it come from whatever the dominant narrative of it is and the dominant narrative in pop culture is kind of what this book says which is a bit um, <laughs> i i also want this is unrelated just while we're on the note of things that annoyed us um <laughs> while we were talking about that the, uh, the other thing that really frustrated me about this book and because i understand what it is trying to do and the way that it is kind of manipulating histories to kind of fit them to the narrative of these three sisters feels like a a kind of particularly feminist effort. It feels like it's trying to tell this narrative about female empowerment. And so for me, another really notable low point is when uh, she has sex with her long lost beloved again. Um, And for context in the 21st century, Trin is a massage therapist because that's the only way she could see to uh, use her healing powers on people. Interesting choices, but here we are. Um, and point. I could have been a doctor, but then I decided to be a massage therapist. <laughs> it's like, do you not think that, you, oh. that doctors touch people? Like, I think that was the thing is she would like, she like massages her magical energy into them. But like, anyway. Um, and yeah, so, so he comes to visit her and her work in secret because they're not supposed to be seeing each other. It's this whole thing. Um, and, and they have sex on her massage table. It's not well written in any sense. Uh, and, and, it literally says that their quote physical connection uh, is what gives her the clarity to save the day. This is straight up. Like she says, um, (laughs) uh, a lifetime of love sent their spirits soaring as their ecstasy peaked. Trin opened herself in that moment, heart and soul and knew in an instant what they needed to do. (laughs) I wrote that down. (laughs) So I would be ready to share it. Um, So I think that in, in that moment in particular, she literally undermines this entire effort that she has gone to to create this kind of women-centred narrative about power because the the main moment where she is kind of claiming this power and being able to um, save the day and, and kind of knowing what she's going to do comes from having sex with a man. Um, so I hated that. <laughs> do you think she was trying to evoke the sort of like ties of paganism and sex in that instead of like thinking mm. too much about the sort of like representation of gender that's certainly how i read that bit. yeah like as much as it, yeah. it wasn't i'm not it was not the sexiest <laughs> scene no. i've ever read um by any means but idea of, sort of fertility remarkably short but yeah but i certainly picked up as it was an attempt because there is so much of a history particularly with witchcraft as a crime to be coded as a sexual crime. Yeah. Um, the women were not only uh, labelled as witches because of their sexuality, but then they were mm. tortured sexually. Mm. Um, and it's also now in this sort of recuperative effort seen as a sort of sexual empowerment narrative. And so yeah. I certainly read yeah. that scene as a an attempt, a very <laughs> clumsy attempt mm. to <laughs> draw the link between witchcraft and sexuality um, 
which mm. I think has particular resonance given that Heinrich Kramer, who wrote the Malleus Maleficarum, who's a demon in this, um, <laughs> like when you read the Malleus Maleficarum, it's incredibly misogynistic. Mm. And he basically says that all women have the potential to be witches because women are sluts. Like that's essentially yeah. his. Yeah. 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 Is attempting to try and recuperate that. I don't think it does a great job. Yeah, I think that, that's, that's what I thought too. Like this mighty penis gave her the power. <laughs> no, the it's day. supposed to be like she's claiming this kind yeah. of sexuality for herself. And so she it opened, just, opened herself. Yeah. Uh, she does make a note of saying that it's not the first time they've slept together too. Cause yes, which I was happy about. Because they were pagans, they didn't have to worry about marriage. They just no. had sex. At- and they like, used yeah, to... Well, Go you. Yes, and they used to um I was about to say apparate. They used to what's yeah. the not word from Harry Potter. What's what do you call that? Transport? Magic. Teleport. Thanks, Lucky. Um they used to teleport to places to have sex. I really enjoyed that part. Where it was like they closed their eyes and then they appeared in a different place and they were gonna shag. I was like, cool. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean it didn't say that phrasing. Say shag. <laughs> to clarify. Love Tess. Can I talk about the things I think it did do well? Yes, I think that's a good idea. So we keep on talking about this like idea of the trio of sisters and the fact that three, and I think that again, it's kind of a common trope, but at least Mm. it's not done offensively in this. It's very common, Mm, but it has a really really long history to it, which is I think tied to both this sort of feminist empowerment narrative, but also just to, you know, thousands and thousands of years of discussion of what a witch is. So we see it a lot in pop culture now, like Charmed is a really obvious example that there's the power of three or um, in Sabrina, there's the weird sisters, but you also get it in like Macbeth. There's a trio of witches. Um, And I think in part, you can see it as a sort of inversion of the Christian Trinity, which is certainly where they're coming at it from in the early modern period of um if the christian holy trinity is the father son and the holy spirit then you get this sort of demonic inversion which is the three witches um so obviously that's aligning it as a bad thing but if you go back before then you get hecate who's the greek or roman goddess of witchcraft and she's often positioned as this triumvirate um, deity she's like a triapartite sort of figure um and so I think that notion of the trio and not being able to be whole until the trio is reunited is actually done quite well in this. And mm. it has this bait and switch if you think that it's one sister that's lost, but actually it's a different sister. Um, so that, but I quite enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think a little bit of that, I was a little bit bored by because I didn't feel like it was written particularly well because I kind of worked it out that <laughs> you yeah. kind of can tell that, you know, obviously the guy is going to, is, is the guy that she's dreaming about from the past. So that's probably the other sister. And you're sort of like, well, obviously that's going to be the thing. And then she has that kind of vision where someone's in like Washington and you're like, okay, well that obviously there's another sister. So one of them isn't what. Um, and so then I wasn't super, um, excited by I think the reveal of it in the moment because you're it's sort of already hinted at and so I kind of skipped over thinking about it more deeply um and kind of in terms of its broader representation I was like oh the moment of the reveal was kind of boring <laughs> um, I think it's one of those things right. this book does it a 
a lot where it uses very, very common tropes and it doesn't really do anything different with them. It's mm. not subverting them in any way. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think it's fair to expect a text to subvert every trope. Mm. So this was one that it did well. Yeah, I agree. This is as much as I think it, like, historically it's really problematic to use Heinrich Kramer and the Malaya smell of a car. <laughs> Because um, not only is it from a different continent and 200 years earlier, but the Puritans had a very, very, very different world. Very different, yeah. To mm. Catholic Heinrich Kramer, mm. um, and like it's very widely noted that the Puritans in New England did not have their equivalent of a Malaysian Maleficarum. They were entering the world uh, with a completely different religious worldview, um, and so yeah, it's historically really fraught to use that figure <laughs> in this text. But by the same token, I think the Malaeus Maleficarum has kind of become this pop culture object mm -hmm. um, in the same way that like the Necronomicon has of this like kind of cult evil book. Like Giles mentions it in Buffy yeah. at one point. It's sort of yeah, this does, yeah. figurehead or it's an, it's an idea of what an evil book is. Um, yeah. Yeah. The way that it uses it in this is at least in line with what the rest of pop culture is doing. I don't necessarily mm. think like it doesn't really mention the Malays very much. It's more just talking about Kramer as a person, but it still does tie into that sort of pop culture phenomenon of looking at the Malayas that way. Yeah. I was gonna say one of the games that I look at with my thesis from the nineties, but also sort of Darklands and also they kind of say that we're going back to, you know, the original medieval text about this. We're not using modern ideas. We're going back to like the historical source and that's the book they go back to. Um, so I think it has this real place in popular imagination and in, I think, popular historical understandings of witchcraft. So not necessarily every academic text, but in the kind of histories that popular audiences are reading, it definitely is that kind of um, point of example of this misogyny and this construction of the idea of what a witch was. Yeah, that's what's so, I think, interesting about the Malayas becoming the sort of representative demonological text, because most scholars, I mean, there's no scholars really agree on how important the Malayas was at the mm. time of the witch trials. Some of them think it was what, you know, caused the witch trials, not very many anymore, though. Um, mm. Some people think that it sort of codified existing ideas, and then some mm. think that it, everyone at the time read it and was like, well, that's crazy, that's so <laughs> intense, can we calm down? Because it is mm. a lot. Um, so the fact that it has such a particularly, like it's so highly debated by mm. historians about how important the Malayas is, but in pop culture, it's just like, yep, the witch's hammer. That was that, what that book. <laughs> that evil book that is bound in human skin. Yeah, I find that really sort of interesting. And I, yeah, like all the other tropes this book does, it doesn't change anything, but at least <laughs> I think a thing about that, and I noticed that with this book as well, with with him, but also with the the figure that kind of spots her and is this leader of the the town against her. Spot kind of spots her doing the magic. His name was Thomas Danforth. Yeah there is this kind of need to put like a specific face to the enemy of the in the witchcraft trials like to not not the witches as the enemy as into the kind of persecutors as the enemy um and one thing i did like was that they included anne who so when she's when she's first caught it's because someone had who was actually also a witch um which I was like, okay. Uh, but she she had kind of turned her in because she knew she'd done this magic after healing her baby. And so there was this slight resistance of the idea that the only persecutors and the big evil men, like 
you know, Kramer and like Danforth and like these kind of town leaders who could be seen as this embodiment of this misogynistic kind of women are witches and we hate them Catholic and war in this context Puritan figure. And so including a little bit of that, I actually thought was quite good because otherwise it was very much going to be like, here is the big bad guy. And in this case, he's literally a demon and he is the cause of all the problems as opposed to kind of acknowledging that there were a lot of really deep seated kind of society, societal issues that contributed to that culture. I think also what it does by including Anne Putnam and Thomas Danforth as characters there, like, so Anne Putnam was a witness during the trials. Mm. She was part of the people who accused other people of being witches. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's also mentioned in other witch texts. So if you watch um, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, there's an Anne Putnam type figure in there. Theo Putnam is meant to be descended from um, Anne Putnam. Yeah, really interesting. But then Thomas Danforth is this also a really interesting figure where in the Salem trials, he wasn't necessarily the judge or the evil perpetrator by any means. He was sort of there and he was in a position of authority, but he didn't by any means drive the trials. Mm. But in The Crucible by Arthur Miller, he becomes one of the leading judges. And so yeah. the pop culture notion of who Thomas Danforth was is as far worse person than he <laughs> potentially was, We again mm. can't he could have done terrible things but like his position as someone in the trials doesn't quite match with what the popular culture but vision of him is yeah um and so this is this instance again where you can see tish thora drawing on the pop culture memory of the trials more than on the historical memory of the trials Mm. that's true yeah kind of was both i was trying to give her some credit and be like at least she doesn't do the one kind of but no, she does, doesn't she? <laughs> she still has she still has him in that kind of that role. Yeah, I like that it kind of privileges the pop culture narrative of the trials <laughs> more than the historical one. Um, because at least there's something there to sort of I don't know, I'm probably very biased and everyone else would be annoyed. <laughs> I you know, this is what I research, so I'm very interested to look at that rather than at the historical so I'm not a very good historian. <laughs> I do feel like we should clarify as well that you did your PhD in English and not in history. It's I did, kind of, yeah. It is a different approach to that kind of um, cultural yeah. studies. Yeah, I'm really interested angle. in more of the way that the narrative of the history is constructed than in the history mm. itself. This book does say that it is also fantasy. It does call itself historical fiction, but it does also call itself fantasy and, you know, a few other genres. So it's not like it's making this direct claim to being accurate. I think that's also <laughs> like, it opens up a discussion of what role marketing has in classifying something as historical mm. fiction versus mm. fantasy like if this is a, this is a self-published book it's a book that tish thora is trying to get popping up on as many um <laughs> search results as possible so that people can buy her book because she mm. doesn't necessarily have you know a, a huge publishing studio there to market it for her to market it yeah and so at what point does like a genre reading of it um start to influence the way that we view the history of mm. is the marketing what's um driving this claim to historicity and that connects back in in general to those ideas about you know new neo-pagan religions and to ideas about witchcraft wanting to connect in to a deeper history as well anyway um but yeah i think it's definitely operating on both fronts it's that kind of that need to um depict and sell the story in a particular way as a genre i mean we we talked a little bit about that last week where Mm. like all of these books seem to mark themselves with the same title phrasing <laughs> yeah. so like yeah. 
the witch, the witch, the like widow, witch of Willow Hall. That was what mine was. The witches of, is it Braybrook or Brack, Blackbrook? Blackbrook. Blackbrook. Yeah. Oh, there's so title. many. Yeah. And we were talking the about witch of. <laughs> the witch of or the thing of to kind of like, I don't know, convey a sense of what the book's going to be about, regardless of what the actual content is. So would you recommend this book then? <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it as necessarily historical fiction. It was very easy to read and I quite enjoyed it. But I think, again, that's coming from the perspective of someone who's really interested in the way these narratives are uh, conveyed. So I think that's why I found it quite fun. Um, I don't think it's a good book. Writing. Um, I tend to agree with Tess. I also didn't have to pay for the book because I borrowed it off. That's answer. I certainly had a really fun time reading it, <laughs> but I do think that's because of my research background. Um, mm. We haven't really touched on the uh, grammatical and syntax errors <laughs> throughout oh, the God. book mm-hmm. or oh, the really? um, lack of <laughs> copy edits. The one, um, the one chapter that starts where it's like, there's like a little bit at the top of the page from the previous chapter and the next chapter just starts at like the bottom oh, of that page. It's like they've just put like a lot of enters instead of a page break. Oh my yeah. God. Oh, no. <laughs> did make me Is this an before. ebook or a printed no, book? No, no, it's a printed book. Okay, and I bought it on Book Depository. Like you, it's, it's on normal websites. Like it's not like, you know, some weird paperback that I found somewhere. Yeah, like it's, it's so weird. It's almost like it was self-published, like the way it comes across. It was, yes. <laughs> she made a publishing company to do so, but um, but it is oh, okay, that's an interesting context. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I, I forgot you. you when you look at the back of it, it says that it's published by Amberleaf mm. Publishing, and I was like, oh, cool, okay, it must be a small press, I'll go and look them up. But then, yeah, when you look at Tish Thora's website, she also runs Amberleaf Designs, so I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> company that you've started for yourself. Um, that's fine. Like self-publishing is a great mm. way to get your work out there. I just think it, it did need a strong copy edit. The section yeah. where they do a page break for a new chapter did really make me Made laugh. Me giggle. <laughs> yeah. It sounded like she needed a little bit of extra support. Like someone just to like read over. Flick through. She but looks did- exactly how I pictured her <laughs> <laughs> as well. I did have a very fun time reading it. Um, but <clears throat> I don't know if anyone else would. Look, did she give her own book five stars like a Hester <laughs> not, Fox did? Not that I saw. Oh, interesting. <laughs> that was pretty very funny. Restrained. That was funny. You're very restrained. Oh, dear. I also find it interesting that I think she lives in like Nevada or something, but all of her books are set in New England and New York. Um, yeah, I'm like, have uh, you been there? She's born in the Midwest and spends most of her adult life bouncing between Colorado and Arizona. There we go. Fascinating. Um, just imagining anywhere that isn't desert. <laughs> But I think it's that, again, that thing of, you know, if you're looking at American witches, it has to be New England. You can't have a California witch. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And put you on the spot as well, Brady, but we've sort of talked about this and failed to come to a lot of good answers. But um, in in talking about recommending this book or not, um, I also have not been able to find thus far a, a witch witchy-themed historical fiction book that I have liked. I mean, I have read The Crucible, um, but in kind of recent years of this sort of type of book, I haven't actually been able to find one. I've read a lot of first pages on Google Preview of many, many, many books in first person that I've not enjoyed. So I'm wondering if 
you have anything to share on that, Bridie, or any any suggestions, but also just, you know, comment on that. Um, it doesn't have to be a book because I would no. thoroughly recommend The Witch, which is a film from 2015. Yeah, I really want to watch that. It's incredible. It's the horror um, one, isn't it? it we is mentioned it last week, yeah. <laughs> I really yeah. do need to watch it. I've read the summary. <laughs> Not too scary, if that helps. Okay. Um, I'm a chicken and I can get through it pretty well. I can do um, horror but, that's like removed from my own life. And I feel like it's, oh, it's very it, should, it should be fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, that one is, I think, doing something really interesting in how it uses history. Um, mm. Because it does, at the outset, say that they are drawing, like nearly all of the dialogue is taken from um, 16th and 17th century texts. Mm. So it is... And like all of the people had to learn a different accent so that they were speaking in the correct accent for the era. Um, I've heard all the details really, like the clothing detail and the uh, stuff so accurate. Yeah, the way that they make the houses and the farm is really, really historically accurate. But at the same time, it has the subtitle of a New England fairy tale and mm. the ending does suddenly veer into fantasy in a way that the text hadn't before then. Um, mm. So I think The Witch by Robert Egger is like amazing um, and does that really, really well. Um, so maybe give that one a watch. I can't think of any recent books that I would recommend <laughs> for the same thing though. We will put it on um, the one of our, our social media sites if either of us come across something that we want to recommend in the future. We <laughs> mm. should have done the witch instead of hocus pocus <laughs> how dare you insult hocus pocus sorry in this way? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not insulting it it's we fine. can do the witch as well you know that i will watch endless witch movies yeah, yeah no <laughs> at some point we should do it definitely because i as i said last week mm. it's always been on my list of things to watch that kind of i've heard incorporate that sort of historical setting with the In fictional way. kind of way mm. Mm. um yeah we'll get variety back again yeah <laughs> yeah I love that film so much i had so much to talk about excellent uh, the, the last movie i watched in cinemas before they all closed down was his latest movie the lighthouse which the was lighthouse. weird oh. as hell <laughs> so i would be very keen to talk about the witch at some point that it's was on quite a- the lighthouse oh that's on amazon prime i'm looking forward to watching that as well Oh. <laughs> it's odd did you say yeah very um, weird oh, i cool. went in thinking it would be weird and it was weirder than i thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> what a scale of weird yeah the witch is a bit, bit less there's no uh mermaid sex cool. disappointing <laughs> wow different responses to that i haven't seen it so that was <laughs> clarify that was a joke <laughs> for our listeners. <laughs> uh oh. Well, we've talked a lot about different historical areas today. Is there anything you guys would suggest to our listeners if they wanted to learn either more about the actual history that these sort of books are drawing on or the way that history has been constructed and conveyed? We can definitely include some in um, the show notes. I'm sure we both have some suggestions. <laughs> Yeah, all the ones I can think of from my head, I also have to have, like, a pretty strong caveat with, like, but this person has got very problematic politics, so nothing mm. that I could do without uh, having to have another 10-minute discussion. And I also think um, it's it's a little bit tricky because 
a lot of those books are quite inaccessible. Like I don't think there's a lot of popular work that does a good job of telling oh, some of these histories. Um, Christian J. Soleil wrote a book in 2017 called Witches, Sluts, Feminists. Even though I think it does ultimately trend towards falling into the same traps that other feminist histories have, which is it talks about how the witch is a healer and it talks about all this other stuff. But it also has this really strong connection to the present day. So they talk about, she talks about the way that um, Hillary Clinton was called a witch during the 2016 electoral debate. Mm. Um, or the fact that people reclaim the word slut in using um, things like the slut march. And so you can sort of correlate that with the reclamation of the word witch. So I would recommend Witches, Sluts, Feminists by Christian J. Soleil. Cool. And we'll definitely have that um, in the show notes as well. And there is, there is one called The Making of Salem, which is, um, I think, history, fiction and tourism is the, Ooh. like sub anyway um which is uh by robin de rosa um and i think that does quite a good job I, i'm not 100 percent sure how accurate it is because i read it at the start of my research um so i don't know if every detail is right but i think it paints quite a good picture about like the different way that the kind of salem witch trials have lived in popular imagination but yes we will put some stuff in the show notes <laughs> <laughs> and also feel free to tweet us or email us or comment on any other posts about our episodes if you have any questions um, you want us to answer especially when we have guests like Bridie on who are really specialists in the topics we are dealing with so we'll endeavor to answer them through social media retrospectively if you have any but also if you notice a book or period that we're covering and you have questions please let us know and we can answer them on the show as well we always like to have any sort of feedback as well so we can always tackle that at the beginning of every podcast yeah we still haven't got any emails yet <laughs> i know i've had feedback like in real life like people yeah, tell yeah. me i'm like send me an email about it i want an email yeah we should stop begging for it <laughs> do a giveaway of a book if someone sends us an email that was a joke <laughs> we need publishing I companies to send us. Witches of Blackbrook, if anyone sends an email. <laughs> they can have the Witcher Willow Hill hole as well. I think accidentally bought two copies of Itichaba as well. So. Wow, calling me out. It was an accident. Uh, <laughs> just give me one. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I was definitely going to try and resell it on eBay, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but I don't know if I can be bothered. So. Okay. <laughs> Our first giveaway goes to Bridie. <laughs> thank you so much. I'll send you guys an email. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So we will mention it at the very end so you can like write it down as you. <laughs> After all that conversation, does anybody have any non-historical fiction recommendations, which is what we usually do, and then we panic that we don't have any recommendations? Actually, <laughs> uh, so this week I do have one. I have been watching something that is oh, also no. historical, but no, I've been watching um, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Me too. That was going to be mine. You can't steal it. Oh. <laughs> Did you like it? I haven't finished it yet. I'm on episode, uh, we just finished episode six, so we'll probably finish it tonight. Yeah. I'm liking it. I'm, yeah. What about you? I really liked it. Yeah, I really, I, I binged the whole thing because my, my Netflix subscription was expiring, so I had to get through it all. And I, I really enjoyed it. So, Oh, yeah, cool. Did you watch The Haunting of Hill House last year, the year, be no, year before? 
I don't think I... I, I think, think I maybe started it and never finished it. And oh. I feel like this is very different and... Very different, yeah. It yeah. has lesbians, right? Yes. It does, yeah. That's all I know about <laughs> it, to be honest. <laughs> yes, brand. lesbians. But yeah, so does Honeyville House. Honeyville House is a Ooh. lesbian character as well. Yeah, it's based on the turn of the screw, so it's not as, like jump scary as the uh haunting of hill house but it's done by the same team and like the same cast and stuff so it's like very anthology based but yeah no i really liked it i'm really liking it i'm excited to see what happens at the end so don't spoil it for me please (laughs) no spoilers (laughs) what about you guys do you have anything else tess brady i'm incredibly boring okay no that's a no (laughs) that's a no okay i've been like marking and not really um reading bits and pieces of bad witch books i've been rereading the matthew riley uh jack west books which are a bunch of novels they are absolute trash but i love them so much (laughs) so Um, good someone who's really playing with historical accuracy by just making shit up (laughs) (laughs) perfect so much fun Nice. It's so good. He broke into the hanging garden of Babylon just before. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, I didn't even realize. I think I remember reading that when I was probably still like in high school at some point. And yeah, I remember the hanging gardens. Yeah. We'll be announcing our November lineup soon, starting with a book that I'll be reading that I think was recommended by Tess's dad. So <laughs> stay, stay tuned on our socials for that. And we hope that you're excited as we are in the meantime for our bonus episode on Hocus Pocus. I'm so excited. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget to subscribe where you find us. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter and like us on Facebook. And if you have any feedback, please send us an email (laughs) at historicalfrictionspod at gmail.com. Did you write that down, Brody? (laughs) (laughs) It is is on our socials, I feel. Yes, it is. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Bridie. It was fantastic to have you. Thank you just very much for having me. (laughs) Thank you for making me read this terrible book. (laughs) (laughs) It was fun. (laughs) And until next time, happy reading.